Tina Koto Katoa, Ko Joe Malcolm, Taku Inua, No Ototahi Aho, No Mai, Haida Mai. Today's session, How to Write a Killer Plot, um, I'm sure we're all going to learn lots in terms of uh, the intricacies of crime writing, but actually at its heart is just two incredibly talented people. So let's meet our novelist. So as many of you will know, Paul Cleaver is an international best-selling author who currently divides his time between his home city of Christchurch, where his novels are set, and Europe. And I've lifted this straight off, <laughs> yeah, I think, from, two, from 2019, I'd say. <laughs> from your website, so <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong here. Okay. Um, his uh, work has been translated into many different languages. He's won several major awards. So... Um, it's a real privilege to have you here. It's nice to be here, thank you. Little known fact is that you do apparently take frisbees to every country you go in and throw frisbees. I do. I have one that I, I travel with. <laughs> so basically, welcome to Paul. Um, and we'd also like to give a very warm welcome to Jacqueline Bluebits, who's joining us um, remotely from Queenstown. Is it Jacqueline? It is, today at least, yeah. Yes, and again, I've also just lifted this from your own website, so you again can correct me if I'm wrong. So Jacqueline Rock Bublitz, a writer, feminist and, interestingly, arachnophobe, um, mm -hmm. you divide your time between Melbourne and your hometown on the west coast of New Zealand. So your debut no novel, Before You Knew My Name, is, um, I can say, amazing. It's like, congratulations on that, it's an incredible book. You wrote it after spending a summer in New York. You really did infuse the book with a lot of that location in New York. So I'm gonna actually start with you and ask you about where this book came from initially, apart from being in New York. Where did the idea of the main character, Alice Lee, who is the subject of, I guess, the sort of the crime plot, and uh, Ruby Jones, who narrates through the novel. Mm. So I was living in uh, Melbourne. Uh, 2014 is when I first had the idea. So this, this book has, has taken a little while um, to, to, to become um, what it is now. I had the idea, unfortunately, because on my street or St Kilda Road where I was living in Melbourne, but a young woman was murdered on her way to work. I was... I had walked that, that strip many times and it, I'd always thought it was a, um, safe enough uh, living on a, uh, you know, a, the tram lines and busy road. Um, the, her, the young woman's name was Renee Lau and her body was found by a jogger the next morning, about six o'clock in the morning, really popular um, running track called the Tan um, in Melbourne. And just a little while before that, there had been a, a really high-profile case in Melbourne, another young woman, Jill Ma, walking along another street that I had lived on, uh, but on the other side of town. It brought back a lot of memories for me of sort of being young in the city and navigating my safety and being really working night shifts and trying to work out how to get home and why are there always alleyways next to train stations and things like that. And uh, did a little bit of research and realised that the jogger who finds the body is as anonymous or, or as voiceless um, in, in a different way, but is as voiceless as, as the victim. And that, that was really interesting to me. So um, in a session where we're going to talk about plot, I had no plot. I just had uh, a question, like, what would it be like to um, be the jogger who uh, found the body and then 
at a deeper level, you know, what kind of connection might you form uh, with that person? So talking about plot, you said you didn't have a plot. Paul, no. mm-hmm. <laughs> do you have plots when you start? No. <laughs> so what's your process then? What's your, is it an idea yeah, or is it a character? Generally. Is it, is it a setting or a... It can, you know what, the answer is yes to all those. With this one, you know, The Quiet People, the idea came from a show I'd seen on Netflix called The Staircase. It was about a writer whose wife either falls or is pushed down a flight of stairs. It's a true story. And I remember thinking at the time, crime writers are judged on, you know, all the time. And I get it in interviews, like, what kind of person comes up with, with this or what's, you As know... In, you, why are you fascinated by that world? Yeah, yeah. Um, often you'll, people will say, oh, so you really love crime. And you've got to go... No, no, hang on, crime writing, it's a very different thing. Uh, you know, so this, this concept came from being, you know, like being judged as a crime writer. Okay, well, what happens, you know, if you have a, a son who goes missing as a crime writer? And let's say you and your wife are a crime writing duo, you know, how are people going to react to that? Like, immediately people are going to go, oh, my God, those, those poor people, you know. And people, people are going to go, well, hang on a second. You know, if anyone can, can frame or stage a scene to look like somebody's been to the house, it's going to be a crime writer. And every time more evidence suggests somebody else was there, then it's switched to make it look like that's, well, they could, they could do this. Because as a crime writer, I've said it on stage, and I'm sure Jacqueline's going to say it on stage, like, you know, that you, you are a little flippant about, about that. Like, I think I could get away with murder. You know, you make that mm-hmm. kind of joke, and, and, of course, these people in the book have a history of making that joke on stage and it just comes back to, to bite them in the ass. So in terms of crime writing, I mean, Jacqueline, I don't really see your book as a crime novel, but it's kind of put in that genre, isn't it? Because I see it as a book about two young women, actually, and their stories. Is that how you developed the story? You weren't setting out to write a crime novel. I wasn't setting out at all to write a crime novel. Um, and part of that, I think, for me was that it was far too... I'm not saying it's common, but it was familiar, the type of crime that I was writing about. It felt like an, you know, an extension of, of real life, one of, one of the darker parts of, of life is, is, is being aware of that these kinds of things like happen, these gender-based crimes. Um, and so I wasn't thinking about... A, and then when I've been embraced, it's been the delight of my um, life to be embraced by the crime writers community, both the readers and, and, and the writers, because I've now also been introduced to this whole world um, outside of perhaps, oh, you know, what my familiarity before was more like sort of Netflix TV shows and they're very tropey things from the 80s around, you know, law and order and, and those kinds of things. So I feel really lucky um, that my publishers made smart decisions um and also then once in the editing process we were um you know I was aware that there were ways that the book would you know could was going to reach perhaps a broader audience which was always what I wanted for for this story it was fun to like go back in and put these little moments um in and actually think more like a crime writer um so let's, so, I'm learning. Um, sorry. so let's um let's talk about that because I'm actually interested as to whether there is a, a certain crime writing convention. So I'm interested in the concept that a lot of crime novels might start with something which narratively happens at the end. So you're kind of starting with something like, you know, Alice Lee is dead, or and it's not like you're giving away the plot, but I'm interested in whether there is a convention there. 
I do tend to just start here and go forward. I, yeah. I, 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 I like the thing of flashbacks. I think it's, it, can, it can work quite well, but I, I don't try to rely on it. I will try to tell the flashback as if it's happening now, like either through dialogue or something, so you're not, you're not bouncing back and forth. Like, but I, I do tend to just start and, and go forward. Um, yeah. So in your um, how you actually write, um, I've, I've read that you can write 7,000 words a day, which seems like an extraordinary yeah. number of words to write. I don't know how many you well, can some, tune out, I mean, Jacqueline, but... <laughs> some of them are the same. You seem but, to be um, very um, prolific in that mm. way. Mm, yeah, but I've got nothing else to do. I'm just <laughs> sitting at home. Like, so are, you, are you actually kind of making it up as you go along? Oh, yeah, I don't plot. I wish I could. The only time I've ever plotted a book, I was never able to write it. So when we come back to what we were saying before about that initial idea, whether it's, a, um, it's normally a character or, or an opening chapter, it's never really a concept. Um, I just kind of go for it. Like, I, I, at any given point, I can see um, the chapter I'm working on and maybe what's going to come after it especially in the beginning, like as you're making your way through it, you can see maybe one or two chapters ahead as I get near the end, I, I'm normally running out. But I, I, don't, I have no idea, you know. So, uh, you know, I'm in my office all day long and I think, you know, when I'm there, it's um, just what it ha whatever happens on the day. It's kind of cool because in that way I'm entertaining myself as well because like, I really just don't know what's going to happen. And, and when you get those kind of like aha moments, it's, it's brilliant. But in saying that, you know, I, I do know a lot of authors and I would say it's probably a 50-50 mix as to who plots. You know, I've spoken to people who will spend six months just making notes and, and having like a, like a pin board or whatever it is in, in their office and just, you know, putting it all up there. And, and then they can write it pretty quickly because they can, they can pull it all together. Um, I just have a notebook with, with whatever's going on, but I really have no idea where things are going. So in terms of actually taking your reader along with it, you're almost going through that journey yourself, aren't you? Like Absolutely, and then you fix it up with rewrites. Like I was telling you before about some of the scenes in the, in the book, because like, you, you don't know what's coming up, and then when you go, you'll suddenly go, oh, I should do this instead, but then you realise you don't have the foundation for that. So you've, you've got right. to go back, go and, back. And, and put those pieces in. Yeah. Um, and, and then it's, it can be tricky because every little change you make will have a, a ripple effect that can, that can you know, go right through the, through the book. And sometimes... You know, it'll get picked up at the end by a copy editor and sometimes it won't get picked up at all and you'll have a reader who'll email you and say, well, actually, you've, you've said this and you're like, oh, my God, that's right. I changed that, which affected that, which affected that. So it can be, it can be very tricky. So, Jacqueline, do you do the same thing? Do, have you got a beginning, middle and end all worked out and you kind of are working with a structure or are you just kind of freewheeling, seeing how it goes? Yeah, freewheeling, seeing how it goes. And, I mean, I only have two novels to, to sort of compare to in terms of my process, but it does sound really similar, like dropping people, characters into a situation and seeing where they take me. And, and I've had to learn on the job that editing is where you make sense of things. Um, I always start at the end. I love that T.S. Eliot line of the end is where we start from. I love, I'm obsessed with nostalgia. I'm obsessed with how people have become who they are. So in particular with Before You Knew My Name, I knew the end scene. I could see it. It was very cinematic for me. And I didn't know who was there or how I was going to get people there. Uh, but... That was always my load star. This, this um, almost to the to the letter. Um, what's in the um, What's in the book now was was the scene that I saw. So worked backwards from that. 
Paul, for you, your novels are based in Christchurch. Mm -hmm. How important is that location for you? Because obviously it's very familiar to you. It is. It's, so you could <clears throat> set them anywhere, but why uh, here? Well, I, I kind of like the reality of it. Like you can, you can make it, you know, it's, it's just the mechanics. You know, if I want to have a character get from here to here, you know, I know how long it's going to take. I know what can be going on in other parts of the city. Just to that part... As one as one thing, I also like having the small town vibe of Christchurch. I know Christchurch isn't a small town, but if you go to London, for example, and you go to a shopping mall, you're not going to run into your dad or your neighbour. But here, you generally will. So it allows for a coincidence factor that you can't really pull off in books. So in the books here, you you can have like a police officer and a serial killer occupy the same space at the same time and not know who each other is, and people will accept that because that happens here. Maybe not with serial killers, but just generally. Um, whereas you wouldn't buy that if that's happening in, a, in a, a city with 10 million people in it. So that's another reason why they're set here. And also just, you know, I love Christchurch. I just love putting the, the, the books here. Years and years ago, when I first started getting published, you know, it was... People weren't so thrilled about seeing New Zealand in, in books as much, you know, and in, in, in crime novels. Not just here, but also uh, internationally as well. You know, you sort of, you know, like in America, for example, all they really want to read is American fiction. You know, the UK, buy a lot of UK fiction, American fiction, Scandinavian fiction. There wasn't really a big appetite for, for New Zealand fiction. So, the, so I'd always tried to make my books sort of you could pick them up out of Christchurch and place it anywhere in the world and it's going to work. And they still work like that, but there's nothing really specific about it, including, you know, uh, the, the latest one. And, and then when it was going... Uh, into the UK, I just got a new publisher there, and, and it was the opposite. She's like, we actually want as much as much New Zealand as we can get into the books now. So moving forward, as of that that book, it was just you know putting thousands of you know rimu trees in there, people getting <laughs> stuck behind people towing jet boats, you know, like there's a part like out of the city, so they get stuck behind like sheep crossing a motorway, just things like that that you you get like. You know, I can hear jet boats on the WiMAC from my house, and I live in the city, you know, so little things just to kind of create a picture that books ago people would not have wanted to have seen. And now, you know, like, ironically, I was having dinner with my neighbour the other night, and, and she said to me, um, you know, I really like your books. You know, thank God, excuse my neighbour. <laughs> and although she just moved out, so maybe she didn't. But anyway, um, she said... Um, yeah, I really like your books, but I really, I, I don't like the New Zealand aspect of them, which I found really uh, interesting. And then I told her the story I just told you guys. And, you know, so you you never really know which way to go in, in that sense. So, um, interesting. But, yeah, but I'm, I'm happy doing the New Zealand stuff now. So, Jacqueline, with your, you wrote this book, it's so, I felt like I was in New York. You know, mm. your experience there obviously is really integral to this book, isn't it? The vibe of New York, the feel of it. Because in a weird kind of way, there's an, there's a, you can be anonymous in New York as opposed to being in Christchurch. Yeah, and at the same time, so you can get lost in New York, but you can also be found in the most extraordinary ways. You know, you, on any given day, you can meet somebody who's going to, you know, change the direction of, of your life. Um, and that is that certainly happened to me. If you, I had both experiences of New York in the five months that I was there, that sort of anonymous, I sometimes would not say a word except to order a bagel and be misunderstood with my hybrid accent. Um, and, and then other times when I would be sitting in a 
bar and meet someone who would end up, you know, being a police officer who worked the, the beat down in Riverside Park and was able to, to give me all of this inside knowledge. And there's such a serendipitous kind of feeling in, in New York. And I don't know if we go there with that idea because of film and um, television. Um, and I didn't meet many New Yorkers, like born and bred New Yorkers. The cop was and, and a few people he introduced me to, but I'm mostly met people coming with this notion of New York and then quite often leaving again, burnt out a little while um, later. But I had this idea, but I didn't have a, a plot. And I thought, well, yeah, where can I set this that's good for me? And that even if this book doesn't work, I will have had like the best time, which, which I did. So, and now I can't imagine it being set anywhere else. Jacqueline, I'm interested, did you know this was good when you wrote it? Did you know it was going to be? Is there a feeling that you get where you think, I think this is really good? You know, I was writing about something that the, the connection formed with the person who finds the body and, and playing with a couple of tropes and playing with some conventions um, and also very freely because, again, nobody was waiting for it. I knew it was a good idea. I wasn't sure that I would be up to the task because I hadn't done it before and I don't have any... Um, um, study behind me either any sort of craft um but to be honest yeah there were a couple of times where I was like if I can if I can do this like a particular scene if I can do this enough um then maybe somebody will help me meaning maybe I will get to that sort of lauded place where you've got an editor spending time with you and helping you craft what will be the finished product um and um it took 49 rejections um, from agents. Counted them recently, just, I don't know, if it, maybe for better or worse or, or something in between, but 49th. I was um, aiming high. I was getting consistent feedback that I was a lovely writer. Thank you. Um, but that the book didn't, didn't fit. They weren't going to be able to market it. And so this is the agent, you know, before it even gets to the publisher. And even after we got the publishing deals, it was a, it just was the way timing works. I got an email from, from an agent um, saying, loved it, but it's just not going to sell. I'm sorry to tell you that in this market, there's just not space for that kind of story. Sorry, you know, you're a lovely writer, best of luck. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't have too much of an ego because, um, there's many more no's when you're first starting out, at least. And I don't know, you can, you can tell me like if, if, what it's like, you know, if I'm lucky enough to keep going at this. Um, yeah, it was a trip. Paul? Yeah, I, think, I think timing is, can be everything. I, I remember when, when my first book, I submitted it to a bunch of uh, agents, editors in the, in the US, and they said the horror, sorry, the, the crime humor mix won't work. The following year, Dexter came out. And then when I was submitting yeah. it after that, they were saying it's been done. You know, oh. I had a, um, had a TV show uh, lined up a couple of years ago with a, with a really good producer in the UK. Was this the cleaner? Uh, it was based on, on a bunch yeah. of the books. Yeah. We, um, we had the scriptwriters on board. We had, like, a couple of TV stations like ITV, BBC, Ready, and then the Me Too movement struck. And they just went, they just dropped it. They said it was just such bad timing. If it had been three months earlier or three months later... But right in that moment, crime writers were under the, the knife, for want of a better term, for how we depict women in, in novels. But as many crime writers have said, we, we depict how society treats people, you know, and they go into the novels. Don't blame crime writers for, for writing what goes on in the world. Blame the world for these kind of things. So it can be, you know, that thing when you are saying before about the, the timing is, is brutal. And also what you're saying about whether something will work you know, and then you, you can kind of be torn a little bit between writing 
what you want to write and, and what you think the, the market wants. And the market's always changing, you know. So you can, you can finally nail what you think is right in that moment. Uh, yeah, but then you have people, was it, um, the guy who wrote uh, Coma, I can't remember his name, but I think his story is he went and bought like the, the top 10 best-selling books at that moment, read them, sort of made a formula, and, um, and, and, and that was his thing. Like he just went out and, and, and now he's this huge... Huge writer, so it's... So that's interesting because, you know, like, I'm going to ask you as well, early on, did you know what you were writing was any good? Do you give it to people like a mate and say, what yeah, do you think of this? Yeah, I had a pretty complicated path to getting um, getting published. I, I was using a, a publishing consultant and um, and paying for it in New Zealand. I've never told this story, and I, don't, I really don't know if I should, but I will have restarted. <laughs> You've started and, now. Um, you better keep... Yeah, you know what? <laughs> just bring my lawyer. No, what happened is that, um, yeah, and, and, and you know, the books were being sent out, and I was getting rejected, and it was kind of... I was getting very crestfallen, and I gave them to... Um, and I was done. You know, I gave them to a couple of my friends of mine who you just met before, and I was like, I'm done. And then this article came out, and the listener... This is like almost getting up to 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Totally destroying this well-known publishing consultant in New Zealand as a fraud and, um, and just like <laughs> screwing everybody. And it was like, oh my God, including me. And so I resent my manuscripts, got signed up. Straight away, Random House. They went, um, well, not straight away, Random House, we love the book and it's the best book we've ever rejected. And I said, <laughs> but if you, if, you want to, if you want to change the end, then we'll, then we'll take another look. And I changed the ending. That was the cleaner. It came out and now I'm sitting here because of it. So that's what stuns me. You know, everyone knows the J.K. Rowling story about the mm -hmm. rejections. Mm -hmm. you, 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 you said before, Jacqueline, you can't have an ego. You, you've got to be quite robust, don't you, in terms oh, of, yeah. do you it's, think? It's, it's tough. And I, I know we're going to talk about editing in a moment, but... I always see my editor as, as who stands between me and the public because it hurts. I don't, I, I don't really get too upset now by a rejection as far as the, the, the manuscript or whatever my editor or publisher has to say because they're working on, on your behalf, but it's more on the other end. If readers aren't liking it, that's when the ego can take a bit of a hammering, and that's why... You know, I don't know about you, Jacqueline, but I haven't read any of my reviews in probably 10 years. I, I, I really? Stay, I stay away from them, yeah, because you can't change what you've, you know, you've written at that mm. point. But, um, but you do got to have a, a pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty robust ego. And then also what you are saying before, like, do you know if a book's good or not? Yeah, you do. You know, like, I mean, I, like, when I finished Acquired People and I was like, damn, this is my best book. And I was really, <laughs> really excited about it. And I sent it off to my publisher and then I was like... And then, and then the doubt comes, it's like, well, maybe it's not. You know, that's when it starts to, starts to kick in. And then, but then, you know, ultimately um, it, it gets that way. Like, you know, your editor, like you end up building um, a lot of trust with your editor. Like, you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I imagine folks here are, are going to start sending, you know, if you're writing a book and you're giving it to your friends to read and your family to friend, that's, uh, friends or family to read, that's great. But all they can really say is we liked it. You know, like, if you wouldn't go to your brother to, like, have a tooth repaired unless he's a dentist, just because he can say it, you know, you've got to get professional help. So, you know, if you are looking at getting feedback on your manuscripts, sometimes you've just got to bite that bullet and spend one or $2,000 and send it out to a professional editor who can then really tell you what's wrong with the book. And there's always going to be something wrong. I always get probably generally eight to ten pages from my editors, and I'm 12 books in, 
just they don't rip it apart. They're not, they're not being mean to you, but they are protecting you and they are helping you make this thing better. And they'll break it down by, you know, well, this is, this is the plot, this is the character, background, and, and it's, it's quite detailed as to just try to help you, um, you know, improve this thing. So it becomes a journey at that point. And once you've worked with the same editor, you know, time and time again, I mean, I just don't question it anymore. Oh, you don't. So I was going to say, right. like, do you hold on to some things? Like, do you go, oh no, I don't, I don't want to change that. Um, like, do you, do you? Is it a back and forth sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, but maybe only, you know, like, maybe a couple of things. Maybe maybe one or two lines. You know, maybe I'll make probably ninety-five percent of the changes without even thinking about it, and the other five I'll be like, oh, okay. And probably most of those I'll I'll, I'll make that change. And just very very occasionally the mail. Generally, it'd be like one line that I really like in the book. I'll be, oh, no, I'll be keeping that. And you just, you learn because these editors, I mean, that's what they do. You know, they're good at their job. So you mentioned you're on your starting this journey onto a second novel. How's that going? Do, do you feel a bit of pressure there? Or is it a, it's obviously <laughs> a very different experience now than it was first time around? I've had the... I think more like 20 pages of feedback on the first, um, which was like the seventh draft. But, and, you know, so the big structural edit's done and I'm, I'm waiting for that. And I'll always, I have such a great team behind me, both in the UK and across Australia and New Zealand, and I know that they have my best interests at heart and they also are very empowering in that they trust my instinct. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to be so nervous when that email comes through with the attachment around sort of how they've, found this um, latest edit um, because I want them to love it because I trust them. Um, and if they love it, they'll, um, then I've, you know, I've, I've, done, my, I've done my job. So I'm, I'm quite um, eager to impress at the moment, I yeah. think. Paul, do you think you're getting better and better? At writing? Yep. Oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Just in general. As you age. Yeah, yeah, as I, <laughs> Get into the, my twilight years. Um, yeah. Yeah. What What is it? Is it Is it knowing? It's experience. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you knowing what works, or what is that? Is that? Uh, is a that few, just... It's a few things. I mean, I think first of all, like, I mean, if you have anybody in a job, say, like a sportsman, and yeah. you know, and they hadn't gotten better in ten years, you know, that will be kind of yeah. You know, um, so it's just. You know, I've, I've done it so much now. Uh, and there are so many things I've learned from it. Like, I, if I get stuck, I don't panic anymore. I just let it come to me. I, I, I'm in no, no rush these days. Because uh, it used to. Like, I mean, I used to get halfway through a book and I'd be like, oh, where's this going? And you're just sitting there forcing it, forcing it. But, when that's, but that happens to me every single book. So for the last three or four, it's just like, that's just part of the process, you know. But one of the most interesting things for me is, you know, when I get my editing, uh, my edit notes for each book, even though they are specific to that novel, there's still a lot you can take out of those notes that will go into the first draft of the, of the next book, just on, you know, like how to structure a novel, you know, the, the, like pacing. Pacing is a big one, repetition. The things you, you learn are always going with you. And I think just, well, I hope that my style has just, like, evolved and gotten better because, you know, I've been doing it a, a long time now. And uh, I mean, that's what I hope. People might read them and <laughs> completely disagree. You know, that's fine. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, so I, I hope I've gotten better. One thing I love about reading crime novels is that sense of not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, because the thing, you don't want to make the reader feel like an idiot, you know, right. so you want to give enough there for them to be able to solve it around the time you want people to solve it. You know, if you suddenly just pull out this killer at the end of the book and then they're not in it, that's kind of... 
that's a little harsh, you know. So you, you do want to um, put those things there. And, and sometimes in my case, when I don't know who the killer's going to be until I get to the end of the book, then that's where the, the rewrites and editing is for. You can, you can drop those little hints in there. Oh, I see. But w one of the things I love doing the most is just lying to you as a, as a reader. <laughs> um, like, you know, um, just completely telling you something and, and that in hindsight, if you were to reread it again, you'd see it's actually not that at all. And, like, this new book, The Quiet People, I'm going to say this because it doesn't ruin it, but it's got this, it's, it's got this prologue in it which mm. just completely tells you something, and then by the end of the book, you're, you're like, that's actually, that's not what he said at all. And if you look at it again, you'd realise it's a different, different thing. And in my previous book, it's, you know, the big twist at the end in, in the previous book, I tell you what that twist is from, like, page two. It's there. It's there 20 pages later, 40 pages later. It's mentioned, like, eight times. Well, but you, you know it's But there. you don't, as a reader, you don't see it because it's just like, oh, it's just part of the, the atmosphere. And then at the end, you're like, oh, yeah, now it makes sense. So you, you've got to... You've got to put those things in there. So, well, because you've got to keep the... the, 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 the you talked about pace. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that must be really important. Pace is different these days from what it used to be, I think, in a, in a crime novel. Like, if you pick up a crime novel that's 100 years old, it might be like one person might die and everyone will sit around in a, in a drawing room at the end and try to solve it. Whereas now, um, I think we've got um, the quality of crime writing... Not to say it wasn't great back then. I'm not trying to act like the Christie wasn't great or anything like that. I don't mean that. I haven't read it. I don't know. But, um, you know, just the quality of crime writing is, is so good these days and the pacing, you know, you just got to keep turning that page. And so every time you write a crime novel now, not only am I competing against other crime novelists, but I'm also competing against Netflix because Netflix is so good. You know, there are so many binge-worthy TV shows. And, and binge-watching a TV show now, which is like 10 episodes long, it's almost like the modern-day equivalent of reading a book. And, you know, and, and I've, I've, you know, I do have friends, and, um, and I can tell you that probably only maybe none of them really read at the moment. They know how to, but they don't. And the thing is, it's just, um, it's just something that no one does anymore. I mean, you guys do, I'm sure. You wouldn't be here. But, you know, if you be in a room with 10 of your friends, maybe one or two of them, and it's just something which has kind of been replaced by... Mm. by uh, having a busy life and, and by such good quality TV writing. So when you're writing a book, you've, you've got to go up against that. And because the quality is so high, you've got, to, you've got to come up with an angle that's different. And the problem is that that concept is probably, whatever your concept is, has probably been done before a hundred times, a thousand times, and you've got to figure out a way to, to make something, you know, original, you know, and, uh, and that's, that's tricky. Very tricky. And so are you um, now talking about what you're competing against? Mm -hmm. You're very aware Jacqueline. of that when you're writing? I'm competing against Jacqueline. So yes, you're competing against... You can cut young. her mic any time you want to, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so again, Jacqueline, are you um, conscious of that whole convention of dropping little clues, as you do in Before You Knew My Name? Like, if I think if I reread that book now, it would be a completely different experience because I know... I, I would probably be like you now. I'd go, oh, there's mm. the clue, there's the clue. Mm -hmm. Were you consciously yeah. dropping clues? I was thinking about true crime like podcasts in particular and things where we already know the outcome of something. We already know that this is the murderer and people have died, but there's this real, um, like, how to build that, build that dread, that sense of, like, we're about tomorrow, I will be dead. And so rather than clues, because I was always, um, you know, from the beginning saying, oh, this isn't a whodunit, because I didn't even know myself who did it for, for quite a long time. Um, it, 
it was more about, you know, who was she and what happened to her. So, yeah, how do I build that dread? It was, it's through the sense of inevitability. And then through the choices that my character was making, I was able to drop in. Not, you know, and the red herrings, um, you know, because there is an expectation that you're going to have twists and that you are going to have all these red herrings. And I wanted to be very careful with that. What could I do differently? Which was, yeah, like really, you know, we all, well, many people who've watched you know, for example, like the Titanic, whether the movie or documentary, you still watch it, even though you know that, that you know it's going to hit an iceberg. Um, it sinks. <laughs> yeah, and it yeah, and it sinks, and it's going to be terrible. But you still you can watch. You know, sorry, spoiler alert for spoiler. anybody who who just hasn't paid much attention to 1912. But um, it, it is something that I thought about a lot too. Like, why do I, and why do so many of us come back to things where we know the outcome? Is because we actually can suspend our disbelief and hope that it will be different. So the the clues or the little moments in um, Alice's kind of journey are about just like hoping that it will end differently for her. Um, with The Quiet People, did you find this was uh, not easy to write, but we're talking about crime writers mm -hmm. and you are one. Mm. And I noticed when I... You noticed was, that I was a crime writer? No. <laughs> I noticed when I was reading some stuff about you that there's some yeah. things that have popped in there about, like, you oh, know... Oh, yeah, that's my life. That's your life. Yeah, except for the kidnapping and murder bit, but... Um, well, that we know of. That you know yeah. of, yeah. Um, no, it was definitely... Um, I mean, this is my second book with a crime writer. Yeah. And because I ran out, I would write another ten if I could, <laughs> if, if, if people would have the appetite for it. But I really love... Books about crime writers, just, you know, when you're reading books about writers as well, like Stephen King's got a few of them and stuff, and just, it's, that's my world. And if I can bring a little bit of that world um, to you mm -hmm. guys, add a, you know, some, uh, you know, just put your main character on a vice and crank it up, that's what I'll, I'll do, yeah. Mm. Why do you think we like crime? Closure. It, right. Mm. Oh, crime <laughs> writing, you mean? Yeah, closure. Because when you read a crime, uh, crime novel, you'll get in the end, you'll get... You'll get justice generally. I mean, there's always going to be one or two books where you, you'll get, have an open ending and, and the killer will get away. But probably 99% of the time, you're going to have a resolution. Somebody's going to go to jail or somebody's going to pay for a crime. And in real life, you, you don't get that. You might, you know, but a lot of time you're not going to. So you are drawn to crime novels because you get that payoff and closure at the end. That's, that's just my, um, my opinion. Okay, well, so my next question is, why do you like writing crime? Why don't you Money. write... I like getting paid. Well, why don't you write a romance novel? I would be pretty awful at it, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be the only one who would, who would say that. Um, no, I, um, I like writing because uh, I always have. It's always, always what I wanted to do when I was a kid, you know, and I wouldn't know. Um, I mean, I was always going to do it. If I had to choose another job now, I don't think I could do anything else other than, than being a writer. I, I love getting the new editions in the mail from different countries with different covers. You know, I love getting emails from people from, you know, like dozens of countries around the world, you know, writing to you with Google Translate, trying to tell you how much they like a like a book. I like going to book fairs and, re and and meeting people and talking on stage. Like ten years ago, and and Rachel will remember this. Like I was horrible. I was so nervous. I used to almost um, want to throw up before coming on stage. And now I kind of like just really love it. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's the reason I, I you know I uh, I'm so eager to be on stage and, and talk now. I love it, and it's and that's just part of the job so um i do it because i actually i i just love it i love doing this you know as, so it doesn't feel like a job and so what happened for me is it was it used to be a hobby 
it's a hobby that's become a job and therefore like I write seven days a week, you know, so you know, I'm, I'm always working, but it doesn't really feel like that unless I'm stuck. Jacqueline, what about you? Do you um, what do you think it is about crime? And you're obviously very interested in people and that whole concept of the randomness of life. And what I was really struck me about your book is that whole sliding doors thing, if you didn't happen to be there at a certain time and it wasn't raining and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, is, does that really fascinate you, almost the fragility of existence? Absolutely, and, and how, you know, you can get out of the shower and the whole world has changed. Your world, sometimes the whole world as well, and not often, um, but, some, you know, you can get out of the shower and there's a message on your answering machine to call someone on your phone these days, not answering machine, but that to call someone and, you know, your, your dad's had a heart attack and you've got, like, everything changes, in, like, in a moment. And I'm always really fascinated with the moment before um, and so, you know, looking at, you know, where someone ends up, how did they get there and who were they in the moment before, you know, it, what was the day before everything changed, like the moment before everything changed. And so it's just me trying to figure out the world, trying to figure out myself um, and I've been fortunate enough fortunate enough to also be able to talk a little bit about the things that I'm really passionate about and and one of those things that won't come as a surprise is gendered violence um, gender-based violence and 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 its impacts and so I will keep coming back to these things and keep earning what I hope is earning my right to contribute in some way to the conversation about some of the things that have you know those thorns in my side since I was a little girl um, around society and how I think it it could be better. So it's, yeah, it's the fragility piece, but it's also the harshness of life as well. And like um, trying to make, trying to find meaning um, because I, I don't um, have any kind of answers myself. So I just, I just keep asking questions really. I remember um, like years ago, I always used to get the question as to, um, you know, as a crime writer, you, you do, put society under a spotlight a little bit and years ago I'd, I'd be asked about that and I wouldn't you know it was always just like I'm just writing a story that's all I'm trying to do is entertain people and and then as as I uh, evolved over the years now you do pick up themes that are important to you that you try to put into the books like uh, you got the standard kind of things like revenge whatever you know that's that's more like a plot kind of theme but then mm. little things in society that that bug you or that you have issues with as a crime writer you can you can put those in, like with a new one. One of my things that I, I sort of have a little problem with is, is social media and, and, and how much it sort of um, influences people to be sometimes pretty horrible people, and, and that's a huge part of this book. So The new one you're writing now? No, the one I was just, uh, um, The Quiet People. Yeah, you know, yeah, because, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, cause, you know as a crime writer, if, if, if I had a, a child who was kidnapped, I know immediately the first thing that would start happening is I'd start getting one-star reviews on Amazon you know, for kidnapping my child, you know, you'd start getting, um, you know, people on social media just piling on and piling on. Mm. Um, mm. And so you, you do find things in society that you just put under the spotlight a, a little bit, which is, you know, it's, but I think that was more, a, it just kind of happened for me. Like I didn't think about it in the beginning. It just, and it wasn't at all, maybe even recently where I realised I've been doing it for maybe three or four books. Let's go to the floor and see if we've got any questions. My question is, when you were doing your uh, research, how good are the New Zealand police when it comes to explaining police procedure 
And okay, so um, the question being about uh, research is, I, I normally don't do it. In fact, Trust No One was the first time I ever did research, and I researched uh, Alzheimer's on Wikipedia for about 10 minutes and saw what I wanted to see, <laughs> and didn't want to go too much further down the, that rabbit hole because I didn't want it to ruin my idea. But as far as the police goes, I've only ever um, once um, done research with, a, with a, a police detective, and it was for this book, actually, The Quiet People. We, uh, thankfully, I had a friend of a friend who, um, who knew a, a homicide detective, and we went out for lunch. And, you know, and I had my little notebook, and I was saying, okay, here's what happens. You know, child goes missing. Who are the first people to show up? What happens in the first hour, the second hour, the third hour? You know, plotting it out. What happens on day two? And he gave me, like, you know, all these, this kind of information. So, in a way, this was the easiest book or the easiest, like, first third of a book I've ever had to write because I had this roadmap I could follow where I just knew where the characters were going to go. But the flip side to that is as a crime novelist, you do tend to throw the police under the bus a little bit because if the police in your books are amazing police officers, they're going to solve it on, <laughs> yeah, on page one. So you kind of have to make them look... A little not... bit slow. <laughs> yeah, your words, but... Um, <laughs> You know, so I've actually never given him a copy of the book because I feel like he's kind of be like, look, you know, I took you out for lunch, I was very friendly to you, and this is how you portray the police, you know? <laughs> so I've always felt guilty about that. I think I've never had to see him, see him since, but it's, it will happen. What advice would you give someone who thinks that they've got a crime novel in them or they've written something? Yeah. What, 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 how do you... I mean, you both have had quite sort of, you know, interesting journeys to this. What mm -hmm. would you say to someone? Um, I, I think Jacqueline nailed it before, where you can actually see a lot from somebody's first 10, 15 pages. Um, I don't read people's manuscripts because I'm always frightened that there's going to be an idea in there that's mm -hmm. going to be similar to an idea I'm working on. This has happened to a friend of mine who, um, who had to abandon his own idea because he didn't want to be accused of, ta of, of taking it. But, uh, but on the occasions I have read 10, 15 pages, there are some real common things that you can highlight immediately, which people can take those through the book. So I would you know, try to get those in front of somebody who can, um, who can give you some advice. Um, otherwise, the next step is go online, find a, a, a manuscript assessor, you know. So, obviously, there are these people who do this online. Yeah. And, and you just pay them... Yeah, just a free, like I was saying before, a freelance editor, a manuscript assessor, same, you know, same kind of thing. And, and they will, um, they can help you. You've got to get a good one. I mean, you've got to... It's hard because you've got to have a good relationship and you've got to really know what you're, what you're going, what your expectations are here because sometimes you can spend a lot of money and really what you're getting back is a copy edit. You've gone into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be getting advice on, you know, on plot and structure, et cetera, et cetera, and then you'll get these notes back on, well, yeah, there's a few typos here, et cetera. So you've got to really do your homework. And you know, there are some websites like Predators and Editors, I think it's called, where, where you kind of learn you know, who is going to take your money and not give any back, anything back. So you've, you've got to... Got to be careful. Um, but, yeah, I mean, try to get it. You, you, you've got two, two options, basically. You either go to a manuscript assessor, editor, and, and get feedback, or you approach, you know, an agent or, or a publisher. And, and generally, you want to put your best foot forward. So uh, I, would, um, I, I would get a, a professional edit. But, you know, you could also be one of those people who just nails it out of the gate, and you don't need that, in which case you'll send it to a publisher, and they go, this is great then it'll go through editing with them on their dime. So, you know, if you are getting doing it yourself, it will cost a couple of thousand dollars. You know, that's probably within New Zealand. Um, but you, you may not need it. You know, you can always try, and if it gets rejected, then, you know, then go through. Jacqueline, would you have, you know, if you could give advice to your 
earlier self or not that you would have needed it or what would you say to oh, someone? I did. I oh, you did need it. Yeah, and the a book that, that changed things for me was Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. It's a book on writing. It's also quite you know, philosophical as is Anne's um, character. And essentially is you just, you, you take... You could have, like me, I have good ideas, I think, um, and but I haven't always known what to do with them. So you just start somewhere and you just take it like scene by scene and if whatever works for you. So for anyone out there who's not at that stage yet of, of having a finished, you know, product to, 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 to hone, um, it is, and you want to know sort of well, how do I actually, how do I write this book, especially if no one's waiting for it. So yeah, you just, you take it like, you do the bits that you can do and you have to know what ends up on the shelves will be so different to that first time I type the end everybody I finished like a book there is very I mean the the essence of the story is there but not much more than that not much more than the essence so know that you don't have to get it right the first time the second the third or even the fifth time you just keep working on it and uh what I said before when you think you're ready to share it stop for a bit and um, yeah, maybe leave it alone for a little bit, come back to it. You, you won't run out of time. Um, or if you do, it'll be like for reasons that you can't even, like the Me Too movement helped me. It didn't help um, Paul. Like you, you have no idea. Um, the right time is when you have gone as far honestly with it on your own before you, are, you know, before you're um, you know, ready to share with someone else. I would add to that, there isn't once in my career that I've rewritten a book and thought I've made it worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so every single, so even if you think, you know what, I'm going to rewrite it one more time before sending it off to an editor, do it. You know, you will, you will improve it. And like you're saying, like, you know, you would not recognise a first, strip, uh, first draft compared to um, the final, once it's gone through editing, it's chalk and cheese. Mm. Well, look, thank you so much, both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear this stuff. I've, I've certainly found it really interesting. I hope everybody else has too. And these are two fantastic books. So if anyone's looking for Christmas presents or anything, I urge you to buy these books. They're fabulous books. And both for, you know, very different reasons, but they are wonderful reads. And you can guarantee that who, whoever you give it to will... Love it. So I'd just like to thank you both very much and good luck with your next book, Jacqueline. I just thank feel you. like that's going to be amazing too and um, I'm sure we'll have more Paul Cleves on the bookshelves as I well. I hope, so. hope so too. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you.